0: Oh, Gavin, don't get all high and mighty about the standards of British television. You gave the world a weakest link. We haven't forgotten that. Ass. Yes. The following podcast contains... What the f*** is this shit? Who the f*** are you, lady? Why the f*** did you hug my hand? Quite a little mouth on him, isn't there? Explicit Language Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you thought you were too good for the coolest show on television, what the hell were you thinking, Richard Dawson? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 387. Damn Dave was so dumb. (laughs) Where we talk about the funniest game show ever created, The Match Game. Stay tuned. The what the Hell We Think of Podcast is brought to you by That One Team at Pub Trivia. We want you to know they are in it to win it. That One Team at Pub Trivia is at every dumb bar trivia night in the universe, and they are way too serious about everything. That One Team of Pub Trivia is very good at trivia, and they will make sure you know how good they are by celebrating every right answer and bitterly fighting one another when they get one wrong. That one team of Pub Trivia, they're the office click you hate and your one friend who invites you at the Pub Trivia because you answered some Jeopardy questions correctly in front of them just one time and they think they need you for the edge. That one team of Pub Trivia, the only thing more trivial than a dumb bar trivia game are the people on that team. This is the Match Game 74, production number 0135. air date to be announced, BTR 1574, and it's take one. Get ready to match the stars, Joe Flynn, Brett Summers, Charles nelson Riley, Linda K. Henning, Richard Dawson, and Betty White, as we play the star-studded Big Money Match Game 74. And now here's the host of Match Game 74, G- is a funny thing. I mean, I can clearly recall things from 20 years ago, but what happened three days ago? It's totally lost. Seriously, blackout drunk. And things that I can definitely remember from when I was a kid, no one else seems to be able to recall. He was molested by his uncles. No, whoa, 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 no. My pedo-uncles went into little girls. I I was safe. What I'm talking about is that things from childhood that seem crystal clear to me, but no one else in my family has any recollection of, I've mentioned before that I clearly remember getting into trouble as a little kid for writing dirty words like poop and butt on index cards and my mom finding them and punishing me because those were, you know... I said a bad word. And when I asked my mom about it, she told me, nah, that never happened. In fact, when I was six or seven, I was so bad at writing and spelling and it was basically impossible for me to have any legible words written on anything, much less spell them correctly, even if the word was butt. Charter means slow. Was he slow? We do not use that kind of word anymore, unless it's in reference to a substance being resistant to heat and flame. And no, I was not slow. I was lazy, and all that learning just seemed like a lot of work. And I always remember that I could uncannily imitate Charles Nelson Riley, and how my dad never liked me doing it. I'm a rugged, tough guy, right? and <laughs> I. Right. I adored talking like Charles and, of course, Paul Lynn because they had such a distinctive way of speaking that was so lilting. And at the time, I had no idea this was because they were both, you know, very gay, uber gay. Because back then, I didn't know what being gay was. And somehow, I managed to build that into a recollection that whenever I did this, imitate Charles or Paul, my dad would become extremely uncomfortable and order me to never do it. Yet... When I brought this up to my dad, his first response is, who's Charles Nelson Riley? And once I told him, he told me that as far as he could remember, not only did I not imitate Charles Nelson Riley, but my southern accent was so thick when I was a kid that even my Bugs Bunny came out son- sounding like something more like that baby vulture who was bringing home that baby bumblebee. I'm bringing home a baby bumble which, now that I think about is actually kind of insulting. And all of this leads me to wonder if I even watched The Match Game at all, because the best parts of it only seem to be in my imagination. The Match Game, however, was a very real show, and its reruns were enjoyed quite the renaissance back in the early 2000s on the Game Show Network, as well as today on YouTube. In the annals of game show histories, there's nothing quite like it, And no one has ever been able to recreate the magic that was the match game at the peak of its popularity. So, this week, let's uh... get ready to match the stars and talk about the match game. Before we can talk specifics, as always, we have to talk about the generalities and I explain to you what exactly a game show is. And for most of us growing up in the halcyon days of television, they were the shows that came on after morning cartoons and before our mom kicked us off so she could. Uh... I'm watching my story. The format, in its most basic form, is one host and one or more contestants who either answer questions or solve some kind of riddle. Then the winner receives. A that you could win cash and prizes. And the losers usually go home with some sort of parting gift. Rice a and turtle wax. Of course, everyone, home, everyone went home with a copy of the home game so the fun could continue after the show was done. And almost as soon as there was a broadcast media, there were game shows. They debuted on radio, and as soon as television took off, they went right over there as well. Truth or Consequences premiered on NBC Radio in 1940 and on NBC Television in 1950. Every network had at least one game show, and the reason for this was very, very simple. First... People enjoyed competing at home, rushing to answer the questions before the on-air contestant and their or or their family members could answer it. A tradition that continues today every evening as millions of Americans demonstrate to themselves how they could so easily win at Jeopardy if they just got the chance. Definitely not. No. Seriously, you, you, no matter how many you answer at home, you, you're not going to win on Jeopardy. That shit is hard. It's the buzzer thingy. And the networks love game shows because they are dirt fucking cheap to make. Corporate sponsors pay for everything. All of it's advertising that doesn't have to follow the rules of advertising. It's totally a... Everybody wins. Except, of course, for the schmucks going home with that fucking case of turtle wax. No one needs that much turtle wax. And as the years churned along, producers began looking for new ways to milk the money cow of the game show and explored new ways to get people to watch. Quiz show cheating scandal. Which worked great until, of course, they were caught doing it. So going back to the drawing board, they came up with a new format where the competition between contestants didn't matter so much because everyone was really there to see famous people being famous. And thus was born the panel game show. They're always panel game shows, but they really came into their own in the 1950s with the primetime quiz shows, What's My Line, I've Got a Secret, and To Tell the Truth. The uh, stars would come on, be asked some silly questions, give sillier answers, and the audience would be charmed by how the stars were just like us. Not really knowing that the stars were only on the show because their careers were in the shitter, and this was the only way they were ever going to be on television ever again. Sad D-list celebrities... You could book a has-been celebrity or a celebrity adjacent. That was a famous person who was famous for no apparent reason. They were like the influencers of their day. And they would sit on the panel, often visibly drunk, and compete against one another, sometimes with a regular contestant. That means you, pod friends. Sometimes without. And banter with the host. And the home viewer would just lap it up. Many, if not most, of the biggest game shows came out of one brain trust. A Mark Goodson, Bill Tomlin production. Right If you watched a TV game show between 1948 and 1996, you were watching a Goodson-Todman join. And so it was that in 1962, Mark Goodson was shopping around for a new game show featuring one of their stable of talent, a young man who began as an NBC page. It's Kenneth from the NBC page program. Uh, no. The, uh... Man in question became a radio DJ, in New York City performed on Broadway, and broke into television as the announcer for the insanely popular Steve Allen's Tonight Show, and he went by the name of Gene Rayburn. The Hollywood Reporter has this to say about what makes a good game show host. Quote For anyone who grew up on game shows, the host often come across as overly cheery, slick, used car salesmen, only with bigger hair and a sharper wardrobe. In the earlier days, anyway, they were middle-aged men with a great voice and a great hair, basically a radio guy who had a face for TV, unquote. The same article from The Hollywood Reporter goes on to give the four Ts of of being a good game show host, tenderness, therapist, tasking, and temperament, with the last one being the key, quote, It may sound counterintuitive, but if you're going to host a game show, you need to check your ego at the door. You are the center of the show, but you're not supposed to seem like you're the center of the show. That principle holds particularly true when you're a part of a game with celebrities. Celeb-based shows are a little tougher to cast. You want the host to be funny, but you also don't want someone who's competing to be funny. It's very tricky to find the right person who is affable as a host, but you could also have on as one of the celebrities, unquote. And in many ways... This describes Gene Rayburn. He was literally a radio guy with a face for TV. But Gene Rayburn was also quick, sly-witted, and able to do something that no other host in my game show watching experience ever did nearly as well. Break the fourth wall without actually breaking the fourth wall. He could wink and nod to the audience, telling them, hey, yep, this is television, and it's all supposed to be fun, goofy bullshit And there's no reason for you to be Why so serious? And even when Gene was being serious, you could tell he was having fun. And so when Mark Goodman was decided he wanted a new show, he wanted to craft it around Rayburn and began working on The Match Game. From New York City, NBC TV presents The Match Game. This portion brought to you today by the makers of new decongestant bromoquinine, the medication that gives you fast, effective, big relief for big, cold miseries. And now here's your host, Gene Rayburn. The format, painfully simple. Two celebrity panelists and two contestants would face off answering fill-in-the-blank questions. Wikipedia sums up the game thusly, quote, a team scored 25 points of two teammates matched, or 50 points of all three contestants matched. The first team to score 100 points won $100 and played the audience match, which featured three survey questions, some of which, especially after 1963, featured a numeric answer format. We surveyed 50 women and asked them how much they should spend on a hat, a format similar to one that would be used later on Family Feud and Card Sharks. Each contestant who agreed with the most popular answer to the question earned the team $50 for a possible total of $450, unquote. The original match game was nothing like its successor in the 70s, with questions like, name a kind of muffin, or write down one of the words to row, row, row your boat, other than row, your, or boat. Or John loves his blank. Ugh, that sounds boring. That's what the viewers thought too. Because in 1963, NBC canceled the show with six weeks left to shoot. And that is when things got weird. You might even say the show went mad. <gasps> mad Magazine. Dick Departolo who some people say is the maddest writer at Mad Magazine, wrote questions for the match game. It was easy money, a nice little side hustle, but the questions were hardly mad. So when the show was canceled, Departola was writing up his final set of questions and decided to spice it up, to make it a little more risque, and submitted a tranche of questions along the lines of Mary likes to pour gravy all over John's blank. And Mark Goodson decided to run with the bluer questions, rightly assuming that the worst that could happen with the show would be canceled, and that had already happened, so fuck it. And you know what happened? It had the opposite effect. The new questions caused ratings to skyrocket, and the show was uncancelled. You know, just like Louis C.K. The match game would run another six years until it was canceled a second time. This time, not because of ratings, but just a general decline in primetime game show ratings in general. Television in the late 1960s was ongoing, undergoing a rapid transformation and, and uh, was shifting to a new dynamic that reflected the same changing social mores and social demographics. You can hear more about that in episode number 291, The Ruhrer Fuhrer. We're just going to keep plugging away. Yes, we are. In 1972... CBS was ready to try again to see if they could recapture some of the glory days of TV game shows, this time outside of primetime. The first show to premiere was The Price is Right, and it became instantly popular, so they turned back to the match game and brought it back. The new match game was similar, but different. Two non-celebrities played off against a panel of six celebrities. The very first celebrity panel consisted of Richard Dawson, Michael Landon, Vicki Lawrence, Jack Klugman, Joanne Flug, and Anita Gillette. Money. It would take an entire podcast series to explain that just know that they were the marginally famous at the time. They are the coming up in the business or on their way down. And many of them had appeared on the previous version of the ga- of the Match Game. And at first This new match game was kind of the same vanilla version of the 60s show, but it didn't take long for Rayburn Rayburn and the producers to decide to just fucking go for it and see what they could get away with. And they popped the cork with this question. Johnny always puts butter on his blank. Hot friends, I cannot explain to you how much you just didn't do this on television. Definitely not on daytime television. You couldn't talk about stuff like boobs and butts on television. You just couldn't. But you could get away with alluding to them. Though Sam was 80 years old, he still liked to blank. <laughs> there were red lines on the show. The contestants they were told explicitly what they could and could not say, as were the panelists. But the panelists were a little harder to wrangle. More on that in just a minute. Mental Floss recaps some of these rules. Quote, Back in the 1970s, there were several words you couldn't say on television. Match game contestants and panelists were warned ahead of taping, for example, that they couldn't say urinate or pee. Only tinkle was acceptable. Likewise, any biologically correct word for the naughty bits of human anatomy were verboten as Marsha Wallace found out one day when she wrote genitalia on her card. Director Iris Scutch stormed over to her when they cut the tape and advised her that this was her first and only warning. If she ever said anything of that ilk again, she'd be banned from the show, unquote. Keep in mind that the word she used was genitalia, not cock. But you know, it wasn't enough to just be a little naughty. He needed the right people to pull it off. Gene Rayburn was perfect. He could read an innocuous question with a potentially filthy answer with that little twinkle in his voice that told the audience to go, you know, just go ahead, have that filthy thought that they were having anyway, while still appearing to be appalled that anyone would find pure intent in such a simple question. And you're a bunch of sex perverts! But he needed the panel to make it work. And after a few work, a few weeks and some shuffling, he would get just that panel. A core a core of regulars that understood now to tap dance right up to the line that would get the whole thing shut down and then pirouette back away from it. And they would become regulars and they would be forever associated with their time on the match game. We turn now again to Mental Thought's quote: The show was still finding its feet during the first few weeks of his return and had a revolving, disparate cast of celebrity panelists. It was decided that perhaps a couple of celebrity regulars for Rayburn to get to know well enough to develop a rapport with would also keep the audience turning back in daily. Jack Klugman had been a reluctant panelist on the first week's episodes, only appearing on the condition that his then-wife, Brett Summers, would be invited to appear in the future. Brett's dying to get out of the house. You'd be doing me a favor. The gravelly-voiced actress with the oversized glasses turned out to be the perfect fit for the show and became one of the three major panelists. Charles Nelson Reilly was an old friend of Rayburn's. The two had worked together on Broadway on Bye Bye Birdie, and Rayburn invited him to play play, thinking that his sly wit and flamboyant personality would make for an amusing panelist. British actor-comedian Richard Dawson was often sarcastic but had a quick mind and was a good game player. It didn't hurt that he was also handsome and charming. He became the third permanent panelist, and it wasn't long before the three had more or less developed into the characters that fit together like puzzle pieces. Summers and Riley, the bickering couple, and Dawson, the droll matinee idol who kissed the female contestants, unquote. First, we have Brett Summers. Brett was a Broadway star and film actress, though she never quite rose to a leading, leading lady, but she was the brassy female voice of the panel. Her gravelly voice and take-no-shit attitude from anyone allowed her to be one of the raunchiest people on the panel. But her biggest role was to play off one other member of the panel. Charles Nelson Reilly. Charles was an American actor, comedian, director, known for his comedic roles on stage, film, and television. He performed in the original Broadway cast of Bye Bye Birdie, Hello Dolly, and How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, for which he won the Tony Award for Best Featured Actor in a Musical. His television credits included The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, and of course, The Match Game. And yes, Charles Nelson Reilly was gay, but he couldn't be openly gay. So instead, he became publicly gay. Everyone knew that Charles was very, 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 very gay. But his character on the match game was uh, kind of like certain words. You couldn't say it. It was hilarious. It was also really fucked up. There's a lot of tragedy in camp. And Charles is one of the campiest bitches to ever vamp on a stage. Where do I even begin with how I feel about Charles Nelson Riley? Because I fucking love Charles Nelson Riley, And I'm not gay. I'm not 100% straight, but I'm not gay. I don't want to have sex with men. But even as a little kid, I wanted to be bigger than life and flamboyant as hell and fucking fabulous. And those words... Exactly describe the character Charles Nelson Riley portrayed on stage. And finally, we have Okay, I'm Richard Dawson. The British actor and comedian who started out as a stand-up in the UK before landing roles on the Benny Hill show. Which God, I'm gonna have to do a show about a short series about Benny Hill someday, before coming to the States and doing the rounds on the early television shows and landing the role of New Kirk on Hogan's Heroes. Another show that needs a full treatment. If nothing else, for the BDSM angle. Richard quickly became the star of the match game, the contestants' favorite and the viewing audience' favorites. His smoozy, flirty style, sardonic wit somewhat overshadowed the panel, and Richard Dawson knew that, and Richard Dawson was his favorite person on the show by far, and he took it just a little too far. King Kong went to the photographers. He was too big to sit on their pony, so instead, Kong blanked the pony he ate it he ate the pony i swear to you what i'm going to show you i've never done on this show before you have oh good Hurry is this the first i, I swear now. to you that's you obviously it it ate the pony is the answer right yes and, and obvious... all that noise about it. not fair and august all... i know what i've written i wrote sat on that's in the question isn't it that's right now no, hey thing? don't do that please i swear <laughs> to god i, I said, <laughs> ate said ate the, the pony instead kong one sat one on the pony now why would i write i wouldn't write that on that's in the question i thought i wrote eight <laughs> I, I would never lie to you but don't take a point away i swear on my life eight was my answer now please take. <laughs> <laughs> now listen we let the delicatessen go by don't... <laughs> don't take a point from this lady I... now listen Richard, I sit down now. now that is not or... fair I, I agree the other thing was fair, but that's not fair. <laughs> Richard Dawson became so popular with the contestants, they actually had to change the rules of the game to ensure other panelists got something like equitable time in the big money rounds. And all of this led to Richard Dawson getting what he finally wanted, his own fucking show. With the star of Family view, Richard Dawson. There were many more panelists. Betty White had a long tenure as a semi-regular, bringing all of her Betty Whiteness to the naughty little game. Dick Martin, Marsha Wallace, Bill Daley, McLean Stevenson, Fannie Flagg, Elaine Joyce, Sarah Kennedy, Patty Deutsch, Bill Mary Wicks, Bill Anderson, and, and Joyce Boulifant. Yeah, don't even worry about it. Just Wikipedia those names. You won't know them if you're under 65, really. I only knew them because, you know... It was a nerd. They became sort of a rotating cast of characters joined by a uh, an it celeb from the mid-1970s who popped up on the show for a week, had a blast, and then went back to real Hollywood. Match Game was the number one show on daytime television. It was number one over all the soaps, all the other game shows. Match Game was number one for three consecutive years. People wanted to be on Match Game, and Match Game was so popular because it was fucking fun. The panel was having fun, and they were frequently drunk. It was a party. It was very much of a party. We used to do uh, two shows and have dinner. (laughs) (laughs) The food wasn't that bad. And the vodka wasn't bad either. It was the 1970s, and by God, these people were going to be free spirits, and America loved it. They also love things like the recurring characters. Again, from Wikipedia, quote, Popular questions featured a character named Dumb Dora or Dumb Donald. These questions often began, Dumb Dora is so dumb... To this, the routine taken from The Tonight Show starring Donnie Carson, the audience responded en masse, was, How dumb is he? Rayburn would finish the question and occasionally praise the audience or deride the audience's lack of unison and make them try the response again. Other common subjects of questions were Superman, Lois Lang, King Kong, Faye Ray, Tarzan, Jane, the Lone Ranger, Tonto. Panelists on the show, most commonly Brett Summers, politicians, Howard Cosell. Questions often featured characters such as ugly Edna or ugly Ulfria, unlucky Louie or Louise, horrible Hannah or horrible Hank, Rodney Rotten, and occasionally voluptuous Velma. Rabin always played the action for laughs and frequently tried to read certain characters in question such as Old Man Periwinkle, Old Mrs. Purvis, and he also did the same with Confucius and Count Dracula. Yeah, okay, it was the 70s. It wasn't going to be PC, folks. Just understand that. It's not woke. By 1979, things were getting kind of played out. As this show continues to prove every week, you can only get so far on dick and fart jokes. Format tweaks, time slot changes, the loss of Richard Dawson to the family feud, and just the changing times began to take its toll on Match Game. In 1979, the show dropped off the regular daytime lineup and went into syndications with new shows still being produced. It was pretty clear... The run was winding down. In 1982, new productions stopped entirely. In 1983, they tried to bring it back, pairing it with its sister show, The Hollywood Squares, in an hour-long block of game programming for a couple of years, with Rayburn still at the helm. But again, it could never really capture what those early years had with the best of Match Game. You just couldn't do it without the same people in the chairs, and they were done doing Match Game. Even Charles Nelson Reilly was tired of it. They tried again to bring it back in 1990 with a different host, but it flopped. They tried it one more time in 1998, but- uh, It was a total flop. It reappeared in 2006 as part of a game show marathon, this time hosted by uh, Ricky Lake. Canada tried to bring it back in 2010, didn't work. ABC finally brought it back in 2016, where it ran sporadically as a mid-season replacement for something like five years, hosted by Alec Baldwin before it was canceled in 2021. This was before Alex shot someone on a movie set. Reruns of the classic show, however, are still out there. They're still on YouTube and the kids are watching them today. Why? Because the match game was only barely a game show. Charles Nelson Riley characterized the experience beautifully when he said one day, During the dinner break, this is not a job, this is a social engagement. Yes, people answered questions and competed against one another, but the real competition was for the biggest laugh, the raunchiest pun, and how close you could come to crossing the censor line and get away with it. It was glorious to see. And it could never come back because we can never recreate the time, place, and people that made the show so very good. Gene Rayburn passed away in 1999, and so have most of the rest of the panelists. And also, Hollywood's changed. Celebrity has changed. No one is going to watch a match game full of TikTok influencers, not even other TikTok influencers. But that doesn't mean match game is still not influencing humor today. And the sly, knowing, participatory Gene Rayburn rink is still very much a thing though it lacks the panache of Gene Rayburn. And there so is the joy that people take with playing with the limits of what they can get away with saying. Since these days, you can either say everything or nothing, depending on where you stand on the comedy divide. Of course, I have my opinions on all of that, but I'm not dumb enough to share them with you publicly. And yes, this low-rated podcast has a lot of match game in our DNA. Our cast of recurring characters are very much taken from the cast of Recurring Jokes on the Match Game Questions. And yes, we even have our own dumb Donald. We, we just refer to him as Producer Gavin. That is it for our show this week! This is a harder show to write than I first imagined. But I still don't think I really did some of my idols proper justice. Because if I just had my way, I'd just run 30 minutes of Charles Nelson Riley and call it a day. But here it is, we got it done and eventually... Speaking of pale imitations of the real thing, rate and review our show so others can find it and realize that we're a pale imitation of a much better podcast. Maybe, I don't know, 99% invisible. If you feel like the giving for the giving season, you can hit us up with a dollar at patreon.com whatthehellpodcast. And we got some merch over at soldierkings.com. Buy yourself a, tur- a shirt with me sitting on the shitter eating beans for Christmas. Do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing, otherwise, he will be forced to don a neckerchief and make cutting remarks about me from the panel. And I don't want him to do that. Very, very harsh and sarcastic. I'm kidding, he's not even. He couldn't be needed to be tried. And so, for me, Drunk Dave was so drunk. He got drunk the other night, and instead of trying to pick up a lady, he tried to pick up a blank. What's so? Producer, if you want to know why Grumpy Gavin is so grumpy, I suggest you look no further than Dumb Dave. Gavin and all the fictional contestants on this show, we want to say we all know that the answer is boobs. The rules say we have to use bosom, And we'll see you all next week. What the Hell Were You Thinking? stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast or on Facebook as whatthehellpodcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. We're doing David Latham. Seltzer Kings. Podcasts.